Welcome. It is the Ski Bump Podcast, and it is your pals, Mario and Brian. Mario, what's up? I'm getting excited. Snow's falling. It's finally happening. Uh, it's gonna be. It's gonna be a good year. Yes, the Northeast is actually. Northeast is getting dumped on right now, and there was some big storms hitting out west. I think they said Alta's hit like 200 inches. The first place at 200 inches this year. Damn. Christmas is coming. Snow is falling. Everything is kind of falling into place for the ski season here in North America, which is fantastic. And I say North America because we had a wonderful guest, and this is part of our main topic. We chatted with our new friend, Nick Robinson, who is the CEO of a company called Maison Sport. And I made sure I asked him how to pronounce it ahead of time, so I didn't sound like a ugly American. But it is Maison Sport, and it's a cool company. The way they do ski instruction in Europe is different than they do it here in the U.S. and Canada, where you kind of show up to your resort, you book a lesson, you get whoever you get, maybe you get to pick someone. Over there, you actually can book your your lessons ahead of time with companies nice. that work with the different resorts, and you can get like. You can you have like a fully rated instructor, find exactly what you're looking for, all kinds of different, you know, languages, which is big in Europe, experience levels, different kinds of, you know, if you're gonna go on piece, off piece, backcountry, touring, lots of different options. So he is a CEO of a company that does that, which is pretty cool. So almost like a Airbnb slash Uber for ski instructors, snowboard instructors. So really cool conversation. We, uh, we talked about a lot of different stuff. He's a former ski racer, uh, British ski racer. So he had some cool experience. Runs a really cool company. It was a great chat. I think you'll enjoy it. So you can check that out in the main topic. Awesome. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Check us out. Skibumpodcast.com. Send us an email. Skibumpodcast at gmail.com. Social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook untapped youtube find us at ski bum podcast shop ski bum podcast.com slash shop you got a few more days sale ends shipping before christmas ends you still have a chance make it happen i believe in you also patreon we still have a patreon patreon.com slash ski bum podcast we got bills we're trying to do more with the podcast we'd love for you to be a patron to support us Maybe become a producer of the show. It's an option. Check it out. Producer. I like Yes. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Mario, let's kick this off the way we always do. It's time for our pray today. So I got a special, special thing for operate today. I kind of concocted it myself. I I call it a crunk tail. So a crunk tail, a crunk tail. So it's, uh, you know, going to, Something pretty good that's just going to get you, you know, going a little bit more. So, so luckily, it's a, a short podcast today because oh yeah, it could get dark and ugly. So I didn't start drinking it because I know it's probably going to put me out. This is a time bomb. Just got to say right there, <laughs> it's like a fuse as you drink it. So it's a, uh, it's basically like a, a a gin gimlet. So it's gin, not a lot of gin either. Just did a good amount of gin, just a gallon. Um. Uh, uh, Lime juice and club soda. But the kicker is the the part that gets it crunk is I'm putting a little bit of this 
THC tincture in it. Oh boy. Now this is the stuff I just got recently. I think I told you about this. Now I put this dropper, this dropper was from the tincture. This usually comes without the dropper. So this is THC tincture, but it's like maple syrup. And it actually is maple flavored. So you could put this on pancakes. This tastes just like syrup. It's freaking awesome. Wow. That's so I mean, tis the season, right? Oh, can you imagine you put this in your maple syrup and have everybody have a taste at, at Christmas breakfast? Oh, you and go, it's like French toast. Put uh, that on there. Dude, and it is delicious tasting. It tastes like and this is what what gets me about all this stuff with THC in it. It tastes so delicious. You're tempted to just drink or eat the whole bottle like it's i just had pancakes weird. man oh it's yeah weird in an hour yeah i didn't put that much in though i measured it out and it's probably only about two three milligrams why haven't yeah i know they're always you know we look at the different reviews for all the different oh, it's delicious like weed the cannabis strains and it's always got like oh they mixed you know girl scout cookies with blue dream and they made this yeah. thing why aren't they taking cannabis and mixing it with like maple trees that's... Now, why are they just like why are they just cutting at the middleman there and we just make combine them so that we have like weed maple syrup trees yeah exactly right where are the botanists to listen to this show tell me why yeah. i'm stupid or why you're gonna start doing it next season so what this actually is it's agave nectar with a maple flavor and i don't know if it's oh now we're combining three trees so now we gotta get a cactus involved too Gotta get a cactus. So they, cactus they have a caramel tree. So they have a natural flavor, which I guess is just probably like agave syrup. They have a caramel flavor. So I guess it's Ooh. That sounds pretty that good, sounds right? Really good. And then they have a maple flavor, which is just it's agave nectar and it's a, an infused syrup is actually what it is. Sweet maple flavor, and the maple flavor is pretty good. And it's natural agave. So it's kind of kind of nice. They say add it to your foods or use it in your syrup so the saying it's imagine someone like points. what if someone like dosed a waffle house like imagine uh, dude, just you, put it in like all it. the all the containers at the waffle house that's a great idea right 300 milligrams in a bottle so this is you know you just kind of take a little bit out of it it's a 60 to 1 thc to cbd ratio nice and they're saying dosing is per capful and the cap was not that big, actually. Same twelve point five milligrams per capful. I don't. I don't want to go out on a limb here, but since Aunt Jemima got canceled, I think she, this is a new window for her, oh, a new opportunity the... to get revenge. Crunk Jemima. Crunk Jemima. She could get revenge on that. What is it? Something Mills or? Oh, what is it some called? Some generic, um, boring name that sounds like a store brand now. Sounds like a another racist mill. I don't know. Yeah. I Mrs. want Aunt Jemima to get gone. her revenge. Wait, is it Mrs. Wait, which was Aunt Jemima's is something mill now, right? Yeah. And what's Mrs. Butterworth? They just took that. They left her alone. She doesn't really, we don't really know what her race and creed is, do we? I don't know, but I, I love Mrs. Butterworth. It's, <laughs> it's horrible for you. I'm, I'm eating like organic maple syrup from freaking Vermont these days, but. That's I still move. miss my Mrs. Butterworth. Do you really? Yeah, you know what? It's disgusting. I know it's fake butter flavor or whatever. Hard. It tastes delicious though. Some ghetto Wonder Bread French toast. Like this oh, is like yes. Ghetto that, French toast. Oh mm. yeah. Ghetto French toast and just freaking they got the Costco size bottle, but I don't like it because it's <laughs> not biggest, shaped like Mrs. Butterworth. Biggest, 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought it was like a giant Mrs. Butterworth. <laughs> that would be great, right? Be like a life-size Mrs. Butterworth. Like a lawn jockey. Like, you can't. What am I doing with this? I can't put this anywhere. This is the recycling. Like, this is my recycling. Like little... No, not a lawn jockey, a... I swear. <laughs> looks like a little person drinking full of syrup. It's great. Uh, that nothing yeah. that filled with weed syrup. And right? you got a party. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. That would so. be great. Oh, they could have Mrs. Weedsworth, and that could be the one with the Mrs. Uh, Butterweed. Butterweed. <laughs> this is Butterweed. This is Butterweed. Is it? Yeah. So that's uh, that's what I got going, and we'll see how it works. Yeah, it's got a good flavor. I'm very surprised. Nice. What do you got going, Brian? So I got a beer. So I was telling Mario before the podcast started. I had a brutal week this week for my. St- it's been a bad since Thanksgiving. There's been like sickness running throughout my house. I had like oh. a stomach bug, and there's like stomach bugs are one of those things you don't wish on your worst enemy. They're just awful. Awful. Oh no, I awful. wish them on my worst enemy. I wish yeah, them I on probably, a lot of people. I wish I do too. I'm that kind of guy. I'm sh- yeah. I'm like that. But I, I guess someone. I say I wish you went. Ang- I think a rival podcast maybe cursed me. With the same thing, oh. or maybe, or maybe the person who said we were the Alex Jones Infowars of Ski Podcast did that said that to me. Said, "I hope you get a stomach I virus." Hope, yeah, I hope and they, they shit won. themselves, and yeah. they won, and I did. So you're welcome. And <laughs> you ruined my family night. It was rough, and I was trying to figure out what to do for a drink. I was thinking about doing like a ginger ale, maybe a little bit of whiskey, but I thought, you know what, beer is actually kind of good for your stomach, right? In theory. We'll see. Yeah, why just not? one. Not having like 10, just one single beer. Do you have a seatbelt on your toilet bowl now? Oh, dude. <laughs> All I got to say is, again, thank God for the bidet because I would be oh, that's, decimated that without it. Decimated. Well, it helps out. Anyway, so I got a couple beers last week. I, I haven't been drinking that much. I don't want to drink that much, but I do like a beer once in a while. And if I'm going to get yeah. a beer, I'm going to get a nice beer. Quality beer. Life's too short. Life is too short. And I always like to drink local. I'm that guy. You know, like I'm the, I'm at the farmer's market. I'm getting my cucumbers there instead of the supermarket Dude, gotta, if I can. You got to uh, grow soul that patch? soul patch. Yeah. You need a soul That could be my uh, my next move. And a poncho. Hey, poncho man. And a soul Why are you drinking that beer? This is great, man. <laughs> so I got a local beer. I didn't go to the actual brewery because it was a little too far to drive. I went to the liquor store, which actually had it. And I was very happy about it. Nice. This beer is an IPA and it's called Drinking Crayons. Oh, it's from that. Icarus Brewing, oh, which is in Lakewood down the down the shore. Everything there has lactose, right? That's Every, lactating. Lactose for everyone. That place is lactating like crazy. You it is lactose intolerant. Don't even go near it. Drive yeah. By. Shout out to you, John, on that one. That's right. Just keep driving. So this is a nice beer. This is this is in my wheelhouse, and most people, you know, some people aren't into this kind of stuff, but some are. So here we go. Heavily weeded and oated. Northeast style Imperial IPA hopped with Eldorado, Amarillo, and Columbus, and then copiously dry hopped with Azaka, Amarillo, Columbus, and Lupulin Mosaic. Wow. Hops. A portion of all proceeds from this beer we donated towards the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation. So oh, nice. You're helping out kids by drinking this beer. By drinking crayons. I mean, you're ruining your kids' lives probably but you're helping out other kids. So, you know, it's kind of like a net zero, but somebody circle of life right there. Ebbs and flows, strikes and gutters, peaks and valleys, right? <laughs> I really like it. If you like big, gnarly, thick, I'd say it's a little bit sweet IPA. This is uh, right up your alley. This is delicious. 
And if you're lactose intolerant and you want to have an experience like Brian had last week, go have a have a six pack of that. They only come in four. They have <laughs> oh, one and a half. Have have a four. Have a four. Yeah. If you're uh, if you want to be in the toilet for most of the week, all I wanted to do was shower and sit in the toilet for like two days. Yeah, that's not great. That's not a great great week. It's not good. It's not great. It's not awesome. Now, but mm. you know, we carry on. We appreciate not crapping ourselves when we're sleeping when we do. So exactly. Sally forth into that. Good <laughs> While night. You're sleeping. Let's go to ski news. Big snow is hitting in the Northeast right now. As we're recording this. So this is on a Friday night, the 16th of December, the last day and a half, it has been just pounding up in uh, new England, the Northeast Parts of Vermont right now, I was looking at a, a tweet from Magic Mountains. I think they had about 16 inches. I think when I sent you that picture this afternoon. Yeah. About 14. About 14 inches they were at this afternoon and still falling. So they got another day of this hitting them. The timing could not have been better with Christmas being next week. All these places just, they need that big dumping before christmas new year's because that's a a big chunk of their season and to get it off on the right foot to get all that snow to have a solid base getting into january is big so it's really great to see we'll see what it ends up netting out at but it's uh it's looking good up in the northeast and it's gonna stay cold next week so fingers crossed it stays that way well even though it doesn't matter uh according to cnn travel ski resorts are melting and here's what it means for winter vacations. They're not really melting. <laughs> no, no, they are. There's, they're completely melting. There's no snow anywhere. And people need to start doing other things besides skiing in the winter. This article came out from CNN and I have seen several people. And we're talking both sides of the aisle here who have just decimated this article. And mm. For I'm very reasons, happy right? for, ver- for various reasons. Yeah. And yeah. so basically they're saying, how do you turn a ski resort green? The easy answer is wait till summer, but then they get into the whole environmental, the paradoxes facing the ski industry. Yeah. You can yeah. close a ski resort, right? Yeah. And, and then of course less. they just go into like <laughs> ski lifts need power to keep turning all season. Resort buildings need energy. Snow groomers need fuel. Guests need to travel. All the things that we know. Like we know this and it's going on about climate crisis and the missions rising. And like what started to get me pissed off about this was of course that alarmist headline from the start. And the thing is, it's such a cherry picked kind of agenda driven article. They could have wrote this article about anything. They could have written it about, NASCAR or CNN or Netflix. This this lame narrative of this uses so much energy. This uses there's so much that goes into this. You know what else? Hospitals need a lot of energy. You know, grocery stores need a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. The, The way that they just try to vilify something, because I guarantee you that person lives in like a 500 square foot apartment and has never ski or snowboarded and hates the winter. And is just trying to have this like skiing industry is going to, everything is going to melt and there's going to be no snow. Yeah. It's just, it's lazy, pathetic, 
propaganda journalism is what it is. And there's just so much of this bullshit that's out there right now that everyone's just trying to like it. I heard a great quote. They said, people, they're not journalists. They're stenographers for the regime. And this mm-hmm. is a perfect example of that sort of journalism. Oh yeah. It's so, weak. It's lazy. The other part of this that pisses me off is they start promoting like, Oh yeah, they're turning, you know, the mountains very green and they're doing environmentally friendly stuff. And I'm like, they're doing it so they can keep profiting and protect their own industry. Like I understand they're doing it for the environment, but the environment is their industry. So if you can't turn a profit, like this isn't socialism here. Like this is still a capitalist society for the most part. And yeah, if your business can't sustain a profit, then it won't work. So if, if, if keeping their resort open and I don't, I don't really necessarily believe the resort should close, but in theory, if the resorts were hurting the environment and producing this drain on the environment, which is why they have to now offset it, then they could just close the resort and help the environment too, but that's not profitable. So that wouldn't happen. Right. So it's kind of, it's feeding itself kind of thing and the industry. And so it's just kind of, I don't know, uh, Maybe you don't have to have lifts. People can hike up and ski. How about that? Yeah. yeah and the thing, and one of the things that, you know, again, talked about all the, the, the energy and the lifts and the groomers and the fuel. If you look at human advancement over time, you will always see that as life got better for humans, more energy has always been consumed because mm-hmm. that means there's less people in poverty. There's more people who are employed. Economies of scale are reached with different kinds of industries. So much of what's great and beneficial to us as a human society is through increased energy usage. And now all of a sudden, the last couple of years, using energy is bad. That's a that's a very slippery slope that we're that we're playing with right there when we say stuff like that. Because you know, here in America. Everyone's not everyone, but a majority of people are are trying to do their best. They're not trying to be wasteful. You look at something like China, where they just keep increasing their CO2 and their coal. You don't yeah, see yeah. these people writing these articles, going over to, you know, to, to Xi and getting in his face and tell him to turn off his coal plants. No, it's easy to make some blanket nonsense article like this and sit in your uh, in your hovel in Brooklyn and think you're so smart. It's not real activism. It's like lazy activism. Yeah, it's the easy kind of... And, and that's just it. If you look at um, energy consumption in the U.S. at least, right? Consumption for energy is... They're kind of... They're weighing it like because we consume so much more per household that they're weighing it against the number of people because we can't, ha- you know, we keep growing as a population and the consumption, it, it's all about consumption, right? So it's not about, it's not, a, it's, it's the whole Starbucks thing that, that pisses me off, right? Like people say, oh, you know, I, I, I like Starbucks because they have recyclable cups, you know, that you get your coffee. Well, if you use 10 of them a day, that's not great for the environment, even though they're readily recyclable, you should have your own mug that you carry around and you know, use less. That's kind of the idea is less consumption Mm -hmm. plus recycling is the way that's going to lead you down that road. But if you look at consumption of electricity, it's just going up and up and it's just like, well, at what point is it going to be unsustainable? Right. So, you know, um, 
while they're pushing consumption down, they're also doing it so that we have enough consumption per household or per person because we're using so much more on power. Right. Yeah. But nobody wants to give up their, you know, I got two, t- three TVs going right now. I got lights. Huh. I got, you know, my phone's charging. I got there's a, in the other room, there's a TV. I got lights on. Like, yeah, I use LED bulbs and that's great, but I'm still using it. You know, it's not like I'm cutting back on how much I use. It's the, it's that same idea. So, but as a ski resort too, though, like we, they are dependent on, the they would not want to use so much energy that what they were doing was causing the environment to heat up what fell into their control area you know like if if they knew that they were using so much that in their general area things were heating up they would not want that so obviously and again they are a business so they're trying to turn a profit so they're not trying to use so much that it cuts into their profit margin so yeah. So it's it's the ski industry is already in a tricky spot to make this work and to have someone from the outside kind of come in and like point their fingers and cherry pick and talk about how what they're doing is, you know, wrong and and the environment is they're destroying the environment to me just seems crazy. So you know it's funny. I'm looking at um <clears throat> environment and environmental I'm sorry, energy information administration for the US government and um, or U.S. and was it U.S. Energy Information Administration, and they have a chart here, and they show year over year for last. Uh, it goes back to 2012, and they show the consumption. Right, so residential has gone up and up and up. Then it went down in 2017 sharply, and then back up. Um, commercial is kind of steadily, you know, probably pretty steady. Industrial is the one that is kind of creeping up. Um, and all in all, out of all the sectors, and transportation is one of them, transportation has been going down the last two years has been lower than 2012, right? Transportation is the only one that's gone down. And overall sectors, it's gone up and up and up every year. So it's pretty hmm. interesting to see like, so transportation, while people bag on you know, cars and, and I guess that's probably mass transportation, you know, they've changed, you know, they've moved the needle on that, but industrial commercial and residential are going up still, you know? Yeah. Well, I think too, part of it is, you know, since COVID and lockdowns, a lot less people are commuting too, because they have the ability to work from home. So less cars on the road, less people needing to be, you know, to transport. Yeah. I just well, even again, like public transportation, a lot of them went to natural gas and some of them are going to other alternative energy. More trains are electric. Yeah. yeah. And again, these whole things, like there's no solution to this. Like that's the thing. There's Thomas Sewell quote, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And yeah, maybe what, what do we do? We just turn the whole ski snowboard outside snow industry, just turn it off. But it's also like, a population is that, is that issue, right? We're going to have to cope with the fact that we have a growing population. We're trying to feed so many people on the planet, right? So that's another thing that feeds in. So while people say, well, the environment's effed up, well, it's also going to F up our whole food supply too at some point. Roll the dice. Go skiing. <laughs> Go skiing. Go skiing and everything is good. It'll be fine. Yeah. Well, fresh air takes care of all that stuff, right? That's right. So talking about fresh air taking care of all that stuff, how about 300 skiing Santas? A Grinch in a tree. All skiing, 
all in Maine. Uh, let's see. Bunch of Santa lookalikes took to the slopes and spread some seasonal cheer this past Sunday. 300 jolly old elves dressed in red dashed together down a mountain with white beards and Santa hats flapping in the breeze at Sunday River Ski Resort in Maine. So if you were there and you saw this and you have pictures, let us know. Hit us up on uh, DM us on Instagram or something and, and we'll take a look because uh, I'd love to see these pictures. Yeah, they, For some uh, reason I love article. when people dress up like that. <laughs> yeah, the article, they uh, they talked about how there really wasn't a ton of natural snow at the time. Uh, they had to you know crank out the, the snowmaking to get it up and, you know, to get it sustainable for that run unfortunately good thing is from that big storm we talked about they should be getting about a foot plus in sunday river in maine so damn nice snow is coming up there maybe santa maybe santa brought the snow i bet you they all i bet you they drank out a lot of the alcohol that was there kind of like the uh snowbound expo when we were there remember how decimated the bar was (laughs) skiers can drink Skiers, and skiers dressed as Santa, I'm sure could drink pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, they oh, raised. Batman. They did raise seventy five hundred dollars this year for a local charity. So it is a nice event they have there at Sunday River every year. Oh, so cool. Glad they pulled it off. I'm not sure if they had to, you know, stop it for COVID, but it's back. It's going, and Santas were in full force. Nice. And we have one final story. This one's kind of a, an unfortunate one. National Guard Airman dies snowboarding at American Dream Mall Big Snow. Damn. Yeah, this happened last week. So a man who has served at the Air National Guard since 2020 died from injuries he suffered last week while snowboarding at American Dream Mall's Big Snow Indoor Slope, his family told Newsday. Airman First Class Peter R. Matthews of the Maryland Air National Guard was with his sister at the indoor ski slope in East Rutherford last week when he fell while snowboarding. His Mm. sister, Sarah Matthews, told Newsday. He's 24. He was from Bayshore, New York. He fell backwards and struck his head. From Northern I know exactly where Bayshore is. Yeah. Emergency workers at the facility, along with a friend who was a registered nurse, performed CPR, including chest compressions, Taken to Hackensack University Medical Center, where he later died. Damn. Oof. That is absolutely horrible. Uh, I mean, you never want to hear something like that, especially at a place like Big Snow. I mean. And a vet. I mean, he survived, you know, a lot of dangerous stuff and out there having some fun and crazy. Did it say if he was wearing a helmet, though? It did not. Because they said he fell backward and struck his head. And I'm like, I really hope he was wearing a helmet. Yeah, I don't see anywhere in there where it says he did or did not. Yeah. I don't know if they mm. require them there. They might. I'm not sure. They might be leaving but, it out of the article because the lawsuit is going on. But I'm just saying. Yeah, because at this point, you know, I mean, again, it's not like you're falling off of a cliff. It's not like you're dealing with rocks. And it could happen. Even with a helmet doesn't mean you're immune to getting a head injury, right? So for sure. It, and you could even be wearing sucks. it and not having it tight enough or not buckled correctly. You know, it's yeah. it's not it's not a uh like a, a sure proof 
you know, it's not a bulletproof vest. It's not indestructible wearing a helmet. There's always complications, yeah. but yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate. It's sad. And, you know, condolences to the family and like, just like, what do you even say? You know, week yeah. before Christmas, die doing mm. something supposed to be fun. Yeah, that's, our heart goes out to them, especially doing something they love, snowboarding, skiing, doing something. Snow, yeah. snow related. Um, yeah. Yeah. 24 too. Awful. Mm. Well, that wraps up the ski news, but snow is falling, trying to get it back on the positive vibe. What We're about go and, getting an instructor in Europe? Brian? Going into our main topic. And yes, we had a great conversation with our new friend, Nick Robinson. And like I mentioned, he's a former British ski racer. He's now the CEO of a company called Maison Sport, which allows you to, if you're in a uh, European ski or snowboard trip, you can go to their website. You can go through all this uh, filtering to find the right instructor for what you're looking to do. If you're a kid, you're an adult, you're a beginner, you're advanced, you want to learn how to cross-country ski, you want to learn how to go into the backcountry, they have instructors that you can pick. You can customize your instructor based on that criteria and have the exact experience that you want. They're all rated. They all get paid very well, so they're going to do a great job. Not saying that people at regular resorts here in the States don't do a great job, but this model is very different than what we're used to over here. And after talking to Nick about it, it's something that could be very interesting if they were to ever open that up here. Uh, we had a little off the record conversation too that I can't really talk about, but heard about how much money certain giant conglomerates make in their lessons. And it is a spicy meatball. But it could be a a good proposition for every mountain if you think about what they have to support with it too, right? Yeah, I mean, think how many people book was you know the Christmas week. How many people are booking lessons for their kids or for their girlfriends, wives, just getting into the sport? Yeah. A lot of lessons. But imagine getting the right person for you based on what you're looking to do. That's what they specialize in. Got a really cool product. You get a little inside look at what things are like over there in uh, in the Alps over in Europe. So here's our interview with Nick. We think you'll enjoy it. Check it out. And we have a very special guest this week coming from across the pond over in uh, Edinburgh right now, but soon to be on the slopes in the Alps. We have Nick Robinson, who is the CEO of Maison Sport, which is a very interesting product where you can, and if I get this wrong, please correct me, you can actually select independent instructors ski snowboard cross-country touring for your trips to your favorite mountains now in the alps so nick welcome and thank you for joining us hi brad thanks for having me on um yeah cool i think that was a good introduction i think you just about nailed it on the head um yeah we we essentially sell skill snowboard lessons um pretty much any resort across europe um and you do that by yeah like like you just said you can you can you can search for a resort across a certain date and find an in independent instructor that suits your needs. I think for all those US listeners, uh, listeners, you'll probably realize that that sort of model isn't really possible over, over in the US, but here in Europe, uh, it's a bit more open and yeah, you have the ability to, to do that all, all within the law. So this is, so would this almost be like if you were in, say you were in London right now, you could take a black cab or you could use Uber. 
Is this are you guys kind of like the Uber of ski instructors? So the Uber of ski instructors would be that would be the case if we set probably set the price um, and we kind of had a few more stringent bits. We let these guys be they're, they're like truly independent. They they set their own price in, uh, they set their own availability, they completely run their own accounts. So it's probably more of a, a blend between Uber and Airbnb, um, I would say. Um, but we do, you know, like it's it, it's still regulated over here and, you know, you have to have the right qualifications and we do all that also, you know, we make sure all the instructors are verified on the platform and um, we have a great customer success and instructor community team to kind of make sure that the whole process, the booking process goes really, really smoothly. So that's, that's really, again, as someone in the US, you pretty much just go to a resort, you sign up and they just hand you somebody. So this concept of being able to, to kind of select your own instructor is, is fascinating. How did this product come about? Like, was there a specific moment where you were, were you frustrated? Did you see a need in the market? Like, how did you decide that you were going to move forward with this product? Okay. This is probably quite a long story. Um, Beautiful. We can, we can come to, we, we can condense time. it down if we did. <laughs> um, so we, I'd been, I'd been work, kind of working in the city, uh, in Geneva, but in finance for a, for a number of years. And, um, I was a ski instructor in a previous life and kind of was looking from outside the industry back into it and kind of realizing that there was a lot of antiquation. Um, so, you know, websites were really old and clunky and there was no online booking. Um, yeah, the whole sort of, the whole sort of ski school world was just hadn't really moved forward with the times. And so, we wanted to move, I wanted to move back in and saw an opportunity to kind of go in there and create, you know, just a normal traditional ski school. Um, you know, again, in Europe, there's in any given resort, there's a, there's a large number of ski schools that operate. So we wanted to come in and, um, and set up a new school, but really bring it into the 21st century, you know, have online booking, um, really great customer services, like nice brand, that type of thing. And then we ended up actually, um, I ended up going into business with my brother, Ollie, and a friend of ours, Aaron. And we, we ended up taking over an existing ski school, which was owned by and, uh, my girlfriend's aunt and uncle. And it was actually one of the first ski schools in the Alps. Uh, so it was set up in 1991. Sorry, one of the Is that first why you started dating her? ski schools. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> okay. It was, actually, it, was, it, was, it was actually just overheard in the living room. It was, her mum was actually there. And she said, oh, you know, uh, you know, Auntie Sue's thinking of selling her ski school and my ears kind of pricked up and I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to call Auntie Sue. Um, <laughs> so we, yeah, we, we ended up taking up and it was kind of the perfect, it was the perfect business to take over. Uh, again, like the website was kind of, um, whilst they had a website and it was working and they had, had like a booking system and everything, it was, you know, it just needed a new lease of life. Um, yeah, so we took, we took, we took that over and, and within that first winter, this is where these, these kind of ideas around Maison Sport and another way of, of, of running a business within this industry started to come in. So there was actually another platform out there called Guidebase, which had been set up to, for people to go and find like mountain guides. So like if you wanted to climb Mont Blanc or, um, you know, in the summer or winter or, or anything, they'd set this up. And I think we'd seen that and had some conversations that, you know, this would, this would maybe actually work really well in our, within our industry. Um, but it's not something you want to do when you've just kind of taken over another business. You don't sit there and go, okay, this, 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 this company could come in and kill us. It's quite hard to kind of accept. And I think through that winter of, of the first year of running that business and, and learning and understanding more about how the instructors operate and what makes them happy and what doesn't and the customers, um, you know, how can we improve on their experience? It became apparent to us that actually, you know, this model could really, really work. Um, and the great thing, 
about Europe was that there was already a large number of these independent instructors that were kind of just floating about. Some of them had websites, um, some of them didn't. Um, and they therefore were starting to struggle a little bit more and more because you know, with the sort of internet generation coming through, all the ski schools were then, you know, just like Supreme was, they're starting to invest in their websites and they were starting to pull down the organic ranks on on, on Google, et cetera. Um, and their sort of average hour count was dropping further and further down. So yeah, we, we basically saw an opportunity to go, you know, we can we can create something different here that's not a traditional ski school that improves the experience, not just for the customer, but also for the instructor. You know, we are we were at heart with three ski instructors and uh, we wanted to create something for, for all the other instructors out there that was going to really improve their lives. So what year was it you took this over? So we, we took over Supreme, I think it was 2015. Um, so it was about seven years ago. Um, and then we launched Maison Sport the following year. So it was, yeah, it was literally, yeah, n- not far off a year after we, we bought the traditional ski school business that we then actually launched the technology platform or, or actually started to move towards a launch anyway, because it wasn't, you know, just a case of us setting this up. None of us are kind of engineers or technical based. So we couldn't just sit there and, you know, code up a website. We were, uh, we were ski instructors. <laughs> so 2015, and then you launched it in 2016, the, the revised yes exactly okay yeah. and then what was that first year like in 2016 I mean, so, the, the, so the big thing was obviously you know we, we we had to go out and, and take on some private investment and luckily through again pretty much through skiing we had we'd we taught a lot of people that were angel investors and kind of in that sort of startup world and uh we were lucky that um like our major shareholder now anthony kind of took a bit of a punt on us at this time off a really poor PowerPoint presentation. Um, and he, stu- he, stuck some, he stuck some money in, which allowed us to go out there and actually build the platform. Um, and like our goal really for that first winter was, you know, let's go out, launch it and try and get a bunch of ski instructors signed up. So um, thankfully we launched, we got like all of our mates in, in like the resorts near us in Courcheval and Maribel in France to come on and sign up. So the numbers picked up pretty quickly. Um, and then the real downer was about a month later when we started trying to market to get customers to come on. We realized that, you know, we have a two-sided marketplace here and um, a customer came on, they messaged an instructor, uh, made their first book in, and we were like, you know, like, you know, popping champagne corks and like celebration. And then the instructor just canceled the book in because oh. they hadn't updated, because they hadn't updated their availability. And this like started a journey for the next short while where, we realized that you know just making the platform and signing up instructors and finding the customers wasn't enough we had to kind of curate this whole experience and make sure that you know the instructors that are on there knew how to use the service and were keeping their calendars up to date and all this type of thing so it was a it was a rocky road from probably there on in but you know that first winter ultimately was super successful we signed up we signed up 100 150 instructors and um, i think we took we took around a hundred thousand euros of bookings. I think myself, Ollie, and Aaron probably taught probably taught about sixty thousand euros of those. <laughs> so we were listed on the site as well. Um, but it was a success for sure, um, and, it, and it enabled us to kind of move on and, and and take it forward. Wow, that's that's actually great. So I, I see what you're saying about having the uh, there's the the two sides to it. There's the instructor side and the uh, the customer side. Obviously, that was a big issue where your first order, where the instructor canceled on that. If you're a customer, how do you start this process? 
to, to make in terms a of the booking process yes. make a booking okay so you'd come on you land on like it's predominantly still like web-based so uh, most people are only booking ski lessons uh maybe once or twice a year so it's not necessarily something that you we felt you needed an app for like originally we will have an app actually very soon but most of the bookings uh, are done just via the web so you'd land on the home page uh, you have the you choose your resort so you've probably already booked your holiday if you look for lessons so let's say you're going to Morsi in France is where I'm heading on Monday. So you, you select your resort, you enter your date that you're going away. Uh, let's just say you're going away for New Year week. And then you choose what type of lesson you're like, you know, you're a ski lesson, you're on a snowboard lesson, you want to go off-piste. Um, you click search and then you're, you're delivered a search results page. And on that page, you have all the instructors that are available for those dates. Um, and then from that, you can click on you can look at the reviews, you can read their biography. Some of them have videos. Uh, they all have different pricing. So you need to check what your budget is. You can see their live time slots. So some of them might you know, run two hour lessons every morning or they might offer full days. There's a, there's a real sort of variety. And so that gives you the ability to then go on there and really tailor it to you know, what you want to do that week. So you have, a, a, it's not just skiing, advanced, medium, or intermediate beginner snowboarding advanced. I mean, you can really, yeah. you can really drill down you can anything, yeah. very specific. Exactly. And then from there, you know, if, if you have a question for the instructor, you can, you can message them directly through the platform. Uh, and if you don't, you can just you know, select the time slot you want to book enter your card details, book pay. It's all confirmed and, you know, three weeks later or two months later, whenever it might be, you know, you've obviously continued to communicate through the platform and to make those final arrangements. Like where do you want to meet? If it's at your hotel or, on the slope or wherever it might be. Uh, and then once the lesson's done, the, the uh, customer is then invited to leave a review. And <clears throat> this is one of the things that really surprised us. We have an insanely high review rate. So like almost 70% of our lessons are reviewed by customers. So that was kind of a dream that the instructors that did a poor job would uh, kind of get, um, you know, sh- which is shine a light on them. Uh, and also then the ones that are rewarded. So some instructors have like a 99% review rate, um, which is insane. So they're obviously doing a really, really good job. Um, and that was another point, actually, the first one of the first lessons that I remember taking on Maison Sport. I hadn't, had never really dawned on me that that feeling of turning up to meet a client and then you kind of know that you're going to get reviewed at the end of it. And I know you, as an, you know, as an instructor or in any service job, you want to go out there and do your best. But I think when you know that someone's going to be like judging you at the end of the lesson, it just ensures that you go the extra mile. So I think that definitely, that's definitely the case here. Yeah. So then what is the process? to to join if you're an instructor okay this has changed a lot over the years but you know right now uh the majority of the onboarding is just done online so you go through a simple sign up flow and then uh, at some point during that process we you know a human element steps in and we we vet the instructor check the qualifications uh have like a not an, an interview is the wrong word but we have like an onboarding call to make sure they understand how to use uh, and, and like, yeah, know how to use the account and can update their calendar and these types of things. And then they're kind of up and running. Okay. And you mentioned too, that some instructors have videos. Have you noticed that a certain kind of instructor, like if you have a bunch of videos and it's like, you have an intro, like, Hey, my name's Rob and I'm going to be your snowboard instructor. Have you noticed that those folks have gotten more bookings or better bookings because they've put more time into their their setup page yeah for sure like there's a there's a real direct 
correlation between yeah, the more effort that's been put into those profile, uh, you know, the photos, the videos, the bios. And so we've, you know, we've also doubled down on that to make sure that there's a really good representation. Uh, I think the other thing as well, people, instructors, or like everyone wants to show off their best ski picks, you know, like deep powder, like cliff drops and that type of thing. And so a lot of that first winter or everyone's profiles, they wanted to just kind of show off how good they were at skiing. But then you realize very quickly that, you know, someone that just wants to send their daughter, Lisa, to a, their five-year-old daughter, Lisa, to a ski lesson. I mean, they don't want to book an instructor who's every, like every photo is them dropping some massive cliff. No double backflips, so, natural <clears throat> lesson, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah, we've then, you know, we've had to explain that and get them to understand that, you know, we actually need pictures, pictures of you with your clients and teacher and, you know, smiley face type stuff. Yeah. No, that's funny. Cause yeah, I could imagine, you know, again, you're, you're, cause I have two kids. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and I didn't get to choose who I picked. But yeah, if I saw the guy like dropping cliffs, I'd be like, I don't know if I want that guy, but it's better than the person who, uh, you know, has nothing on their picture. Or, you know, I'd rather him be challenged a bit and rather have the guy dropping cliffs than the, uh, the person doing nothing. Right. Yeah. Another, another big thing over here, which maybe like, isn't as big in the U S or big of an issue in the U S would be that the language barriers, so like whether it's Brits going over to France or another country or, you know, Germany to France or, you know, Dutch, to, like there's, there's, a, there's a language issues between sort of customers and instructors. And it, like, you know, when, when you're being taught something, you want to be able to speak quite possible, like really clearly to each other. So I think there's been a lot of bad experiences over the years of turning up to a resort and kids just being dumped by their parents uh, with instructors that don't speak their language at all. And they've had bad experiences. They, these people are now like, you know, they're in their thirties and forties and fifties and they've had kids and they're now deciding where to send them. And so they, they go, you know, I want to know who is going to be actually teaching my child. It's not, it's not good enough to just go, I'm going to give them to this school. I want to understand, you know, what language they speak and is my child going to be looked after and are they going to have a good experience? Some arrogant French instructor, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) No, but yeah, like I think, I think, I think also it's like, there's also as a parent you have that moment of truth when you take your kids skiing because you're so desperate for them to want to enjoy it and share this passion that you have because if it goes badly that could be the end of you know a lot of ski trips for you too so i think yeah making sure that you have the right person is super important yeah so i'm sure you have that too you probably have um folks who like that specialize in in children's lessons as well yeah yeah, I think I think I think the majority of instructors would say that's probably their focus. But you do actually have some instructors that have gone the opposite way. They go, you know, I'm I'm actually done teaching kids. Uh, I want to focus more on the advanced side of things and go off piste. But you know, the majority of instructors are, you know, that's their bread and butter. As someone who's been teaching my child, my son is five. I've been teaching him the last three seasons. I completely understand. Uh, it's, but it's funny. I put him in a lesson at a local place. And the only report I got on him was he's not good at pizza. Like all he wants to do is like just rip down doing French fries. And it's funny because right after that, it was like a two hour lesson. Right after that, I took him on the bunny hill and I said, follow me down. And you know what? He was able to do his pizza and he followed me right down. I'm like, well, whatever they taught him was just enough. Maybe he was, maybe just listening was something he had to learn in that lesson. But I, I mean, if I had the opportunity to look at people's profiles because again, as a parent, you kind of know the kind of person that you want to teach kind of like you alluded to before, you know, the kind of person that's like, you see like a, a lady in her fifties who's been doing this for 40 years. Like you're like, I want her teaching my kid because she's done this a million times. She's probably like taught now like Olympians. So like, that's the person you want. So it's cool that they you have this opportunity to filter through 
not just based on location, language, uh, time, but to actually see the person and, you know, get their little bio, understand what they're about, because you really can get the right experience. Because again, like you alluded to, getting the right experience, especially young, gets them on the right path to fall in love with the sport, which as a parent is really all you're trying to do. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's this other added benefit of the platform that because, because these independent instructors don't, you know, lose such a large portion of their income to ski schools that they, you know, often charge less than their ski schools. So, you know, you actually get this better experience, but actually sometimes you pay 30, 40, 50% less than you would pay at the local ski school. So it can really double down and just be this incredible, incredible experience. Have you noticed in recent years a lot more? advanced and expert folks going back to getting into taking lessons? Yeah, I would say it's we've, you know, we focused as a business very much on that sort of beginner intermediate stage. But I think over the past 12 months in particular, the the platform started to appeal to those types of people, uh, you know, just to top up. And I think through COVID, like certainly in Europe, the mountains closed for, in some places, the best part of two years. And I think we saw a lot mm. of that, you know, people coming back out and like feeling quite rusty after not skiing a whole, a whole load for a couple of years and wanted to kind of revisit and improve their technique. Um, and I think there's a lot more that we can do there as well to like, you know, make that more interesting and make that more fun. Um, you know, whether it's through sort of like badges and sort of grading and that type of thing and kind of gamify this, gamify it slightly more. Yeah. And I know one thing that we've kind of unearthed over the, um, you know, the last year or so, just talking to folks and, and reading articles is that, and, and, you know, you see the stories last year, specifically 2021, like the first year of post pandemic, at least over here, I know things were a little touchy in different spots, but the increase in sales in kind of touring gear had just exploded. And also cross country skiing, I think they said cross country skiing is up 40, 40 some percent their sales. So people are just like, you know, I love the outdoors. I love the snow. Maybe I don't, maybe I'm not comfortable going to a resort yet. I don't want to be around all those people, but I want to be out there in the snow. I saw that you you guys have cross-country skiing and ski touring as some options. Have you seen that sort of blowing up in the last couple of years? Yeah, big time. So like imagine the imagine the season where there was no lift running. I mean, it was it was huge. Like there was like we were there were stories i think like a salomon actually decamped to a couple of the big resorts in france and just took like all of their touring gear because all the uh, ski rental shops were used to you know i don't know maybe 10 sets of touring skis being rented on a weekly basis and all of a sudden there's demand for like hundreds if not thousands of wow. these skis and there was just you just couldn't get any of them um so that was huge and then yeah the same, same for cross-country skiing really uh, i don't know for you guys but the see the year the year the mountain was closed over here was an awesome winter of snow it was like it was absolutely <laughs> of course typical. it was i mean it was like it was phenomenal it was phenomenal so yeah it was certainly a boom and i think we're going to continue to see that grow because i know for myself you know i've done a little bit of touring but i remember the first time i rented touring gear it was my sister and i we were out in colorado we were going to eldora and we had reserved the gear. We went to go pick it up and we're ready to walk out with it. And I look at it and I say to her, I'm like, do you know how to put this on? She's like, no, do you? I'm like, no, I don't. And that's where having an instructor, have even just, even just for the gear, because if you're someone who's used to resort skiing, get your boots, get your skis with your bindings, you clip in, you go, you know, yeah. press the back, binding, pop out. 
but there's definitely a little more nuance to to touring gear and cross country skis. You look at me like, what? What's where's the rest of the ski? You know, it's like this little tiny thing. Having that sort of hand holding to have someone able to just give you again an hour lesson to to do things right. That again, like just like for children. If you're a beginner at anything, you want to have the right experience early on to make sure you have the optimal time when you're out there. So I, I love that you guys offer that. And I, I'm, have you seen an increase in, in the number of instructors or the number of customers requesting that stuff? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like already now, like a, a much larger percentage of our bookings coming through right now are for that those exact types of things. So people probably went out, bought the touring gear and then realized that actually this isn't just like a, a classic thing of just pick up and use it. There are like a lot of uh, things to learn and nuances and it makes it a whole lot more enjoy- enjoyable if you actually know how to use that stuff properly. Uh, I mean, my, my first experience on a set of cross-country skis was like complete disaster. It was like classic, you know, ex-ski racer turns up, thinks he's going to be able to go downhill on these things. And I think <laughs> I went down there, I went down the track and it was like first turn, uh, just went straight on basically. straight on straight on into the off piece and yeah it was a bit of a disaster you've ruined the track for everybody right (laughs) (laughs) exactly so yeah so let's hear a little bit your history now so you were a member of the british ski team how because you know i guess the uk has an interesting ski dynamic because you guys don't have a lot of local mountains i guess you have some in scotland you have a lot of your indoor ones now but you're just a quick little puddle jump away from the Alps. So how did you get started in, in skiing and in, what was your ski career like? So like a lot of other Brits, actually, I started on a dry ski slope, which for those of you that don't know, is, uh, it's made of plastic Dendex. Um, so it kind of comes in diamond form or like a plastic carpet. It's like tiny bristles, almost like a toothbrush. So we had, there's like a huge amount of these dry slopes in the UK. Like there must be, there must be, well, at one point there must've been 30 plus, like really spread out or like almost every sort of city or town had a, had its own dry ski slope. So we really love to ski actually in the UK. Like it's a massive, it's a, it's a massive thing to do. And so, um, there was a really awesome race circuit. Uh, my dad used to ski race a bit when he was younger and got us into it and he became actually a coach at our local club. So by the time I was like 11, 12, we were racing almost every weekend on this dry, on this dry ski slope race circuit. Um, you know, like from there it was then okay this progression to, to going over it but the biggest challenge for us is that the cost of that is then significant so if you want to go and spend a decent amount of time away in the alps uh, you had to, you had to go and you had, you had to you had to go to an academy and um, essentially go and you know, pay a huge amount of money to live abroad and so depending on your background that's maybe not possible and so for us we didn't have loads of money growing up and um, the options for us to go and do that at an early age were very slim um, but luckily there was like, you know, there's a, there was a, there was a few clubs at that time <clears throat> that it was probably good for their business model to be picking some of the really good up and coming races, you know, give it to them at a lower cost and then pull in the rest of the rest of the people. And so we were really helped out. Um, one, one, one of the clubs is called DHO downhill only. Um, and this, this lady, Ingrid Christofferson, uh, was really helpful to me. And then also Malcolm Erskine at the British Ski Academy, which was based in Chamonix. And so. We would go out there and spend, you know, up to sort of 12, 15 weeks a season training. Uh, oh, wow. 
at a really good at a really good price and you know school and school in the afternoon ski in the morning so you know we had to make that transition but you know, we weren't going from like I, I didn't ski on snow for the first time until I was nine uh, oh, wow. and I haven't really spent any any decent time racing until I was sort of 12 or 13 but that transition from racing so much slalom on dry ski slope just really really like transitioned over to the to the snow really smoothly and so if it was bumpy or steep we were rubbish but anytime <laughs> it was flat and smooth we were really really fast and so you still see that now uh with with dave riding on on the circuit like through his early part of his world cup career he would dominate on the flats uh like in levy and finland at the open world cup it's phenomenally fast and then uh and then yeah his first brit like, to win a uh, world cup race this year right exactly yeah yeah exactly and so dave was like Dave's a few years older than me, but we were, you know, we were fierce competitors on the dry ski slope. And, uh, you know, he definitely just took everything that he had from the dry slope on, onto the snow. And I think, you know, when he was stood at the top, I think the, that, that first year that he podiumed at Kitzbühel, he was in, he was winning after the first run, but the guy has won so many, he's probably won more races than the majority of people that ski on World Cup. They might've been, you know, on small dry ski slopes in, in the UK, but mm-hmm. I think it teaches you something about winning and the pressure that used to come with it because, you know, the pressure that he would have put on himself to win those big dry ski slow races would have been enormous. Um, so when it came down to it, I think that's had a big impact on him. Yeah, that was, that, that was, that was kind of our journey. And then from there on, we, uh, you know, I, I progressed really well. And with those, there was a really good group of us that kind of carried on, um, carried on racing through into the teenagers. And, you know, as every year goes on, some people drop out and can't keep going. And we were, we were put onto the British youth team that, the age of 16 so there was four of us uh, that were quite close in age that left school at all, we all left school at 16 and went became full-time racers so we raced we were away for what nine months of the year uh, i think the first summer i got my like high school high school results probably the equivalent um and that same day we were on a flight to chile to spend the next sort of seven weeks training over the summer wow. uh, and then kind of just progressed on from that so we you know we had the most awesome time from the age of sort of 12 or 13 i was away for most of the winter with you know without the parents there um just with <laughs> you know my best friends just traveling around racing it was it was it was a pretty cool childhood to be honest that's that sounds awesome that sounds absolutely incredible so then eventually you have to grow up right and you have to get into the real world well for most of us there's a yeah. few superheroes who get to keep doing it every day <clears throat> um and i know you uh you know, you were, you worked in Geneva, you said, and you were, uh, I guess in, in banking, right? Yeah. So that transition happened quite quickly for me. Um, I was, I, I performed really well through that age of like 16, 17. Um, like at one point, you know, I'd reached kind of top 10 world rankings for my age. Things were going really well. And then like broken leg, funding starts to dry up just those sort of like typical typical issues but um for me i actually also my daughter was born when i was very young so she my, my, my girlfriend at the time who, who's, who we're still together now um what like 14 15 years later uh she she was quite a bit older than me and we decided that we were gonna we were gonna keep the baby um but i was only 18 at the time um, wow. so i quit i put a lot of pressure on myself to go you know if i, I didn't want to be you know, trying to make World Cup when I was 25, 26 years old, I was like, you know, we need to make these moves really quickly and, and really perform. So uh, I, I made the decision quite quickly, you know, like, I think it was probably the follow, end of the following winter that you know, I didn't want to keep pursuing that. Um, 
and then yeah, I got I got I got, I got picked up actually by uh, a friend of a friend who worked in a, in a in a financial brokerage in Geneva. Saw that you know I was good at I was good with people and good from a social aspect, which was important in that industry. But I was also even though I left school at a young age, I was I was I was, I was pretty good at maths. Um, and they highlighted that I'd be able to go out and take all the clients out skiing at the weekends <laughs> and have a good time, basically. So again, it was kind of skiing that kind of got me into that into that world. Um, but yeah. Wow, that's that's a that's a pretty intense story. So, but I guess you know you had that that experience, that fun. But as fun as it was, it was also built discipline and a structure, so that you know again you left the you know the racing circuit, but you also had this experience where you knew how you knew how to structure things and build off of things. So you could move that into a a regular you know regular kind of career. But what's even more inspiring is that you didn't kind of, you didn't let that dream totally die. You know, you found that way to take, I guess it's, it's a, it's a good metaphor for how, you know, in the UK, you guys are the big skiers. You don't have the mountains. You don't have all the snow. You you make these indoor Hills, you find a way to do it. You know, it's yeah. like, you kind of, you find a way to follow the passion, to do what you love. And, you know, going through some, you know, challenging times you found a way to to kind of turn it around and and eventually it became sort of probably more than you ever could have expected it to turn into right yeah for sure like that you know i think just in your first point the things that you learn i think through living that life that we lived were just you know invaluable um we were very much i wouldn't say left on our own or left to our own devices but you know we had to make our own path and um, you know, stay disciplined. And yes, we, you know, we had some success at age. We didn't, none of us probably went as far as we wanted to. Well, apart from Dave, uh, he's the <laughs> only one that actually went through and actually did what, what we all wanted to do. But um, no, we, we learned a huge amount. And I think for me, I just, uh, you know, I, I came out of that world. And I think for any probably ex-athlete is the same, is that you channel that same sort of passion and drive into something else. And for me, that kind of went straight into uh, into business. And I, but I realized quite quickly, actually, that it wasn't just about, you know, making money or building the biggest business. It was actually about working in something that you're super passionate about. So for us, that kind of came back into back into it. And so the fact that we get to work, you know, not always day to day on the snow anymore, uh, you're actually in the mountains even, but to be working within that industry that you know so well and you talk about and you meet like-minded people and these types of things, it's, yeah, it, it, makes it, it makes it all worthwhile. And it's one of those industries too, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, been doing it for a year you've been doing it your whole life ski and snowboard people are the best people i mean you just i mean we just met today like we just started chatting like we knew each other for a couple of years you know it's just one of those things there's a commonality and there's just a a, a love of of snow and i was going to ask you the question like why does skiing matter because i've been you know we've been talking to a lot of folks who are talking about climate change and how snow is changing and and you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, we want to reduce carbon. We want to like lower our, uh, we want to be more sustainable. And if you, we're really honest with ourselves, like we should just stop skiing altogether then. Like if that was, if that was really the, if we were going to be hardliners about things, like we'd be like skiing is dumb, we shouldn't do it. But then you kind of meet people, you talk to people, you, you, you experience what skiing is, what being in the snow is. And there's, there's the, there's something that's, it's not really replicatable any other way. Um, yeah, so no, I, what does I, I think skiing it's, I think, mean to I, you? Why does it matter? 
I think it's one of like it's one of it's one of the few things where there's an opportunity as an adult to like go out and play in this outdoor environment, you know, and you're often with your friends. It's just like it's like you said before, it's very different difficult to replicate it, you know. And you know, pretty much all my best days of my life have been in the mountains on with, with two ski straps to my feet. And I think, you know, happiness is probably the thing that comes to my mind. Like I'm never happier than when I'm on my skis and we're out there and <clears throat> the community aspects of it. And I think so much of the modern world is the community is more and more difficult to create, uh, like more and more is online and those types of things. And I think, I think within skiing, there's a really tight community and whatever, like, like worldwide, but also within within resorts and within friendship groups, et cetera. And so, yeah, for me, it's all about that. It's about having fun and, and, and meeting up and skiing with your friends. And I think, yeah, for a lot of people that do it and are passionate about it, it's kind of the thing that gives them their happiness in life. So yes, whilst that you know there's there's challenges with it, and I think the industry has to keep moving on and finding ways to kind of move with the times. Um, yeah, I think I think it would be devastating to, to lose that. I couldn't actually imagine a life without skiing. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And you kind of mentioned like being an adult and being able to play. I know, like a couple, you know, just being up, like ask the average forty-five-year-old last time they jumped. And they probably couldn't tell you. I mean, that's those little things. Like, I mean, and also you look at someone like a, like a Klaus Obermeier. They said he's just celebrating his hundredth year on skis. He's 103, 100 years on skis. The guy still got a big smile on his face. For 103, he looks tremendous. Looks like he's in. A, he looks like Bernie know, Sanders. He, also does, he's he just he does not look 103. Not even close. I saw a picture of him last week. I was shocked. What else could you be doing at that age to keep yourself that young? Maybe yoga, but you know, you're not going to be running at that age. Your knees are going to be decimated. You're going to be all, you know, arthritic up. It's just one of those things. And it's, it's so hard to, to tell people who don't understand it. You know, it's almost like you're speaking a special language that if you're not into the, you're not into it, like you're just not going to get it. I was talking to somebody a couple of years ago. I, was up at Vermont at Killington and this was, it was I think like second week in March and it was a frigid day. I mean, absolutely frigid, probably, you know, zero Fahrenheit. So what's that like minus minus 10 Celsius miserable. One of the best days I've ever skied. And I came back with frostbite and I was proud of my frostbite. Cause you know what? There was nobody on the mountains it was like, beautiful i mean it wasn't powder but it was like smooth corduroy almost all over the mountain i'd have to go in and warm up every 20 minutes but it was one of the best days skiing i've ever had and i came back with frostbite and people like you kept skiing i said yes i wasn't i mean i knew it was march i mean it's going to be april things are going to start melting soon like i got to take advantage of this and every skier i told was like oh that makes sense totally get that but like the normies were like you're crazy man why would you do that so that's yeah, I think just, everyone like I mean that that like that is just a sport, you know. And sometimes the sacrifices that we make to uh, to go skiing sometimes are uh, yeah actually quite laughable when you look back on them. But you know you wouldn't change them. Everybody has one of those like traveling stories where it's like oh they lost my skis or we got stuck driving for an extra four hours because the roads were closed and it's like we, those are like badges of honor for us. Where other people just you know it's something to complain about. I've got this story. We were, um, this is when I was on the British ski team. We were racing in Zagreb in Croatia. There's like a, a hill just out, like, like right by the city. Like you can see the city from the hill. And so there were two, two slalom races over the weekend. And I don't know what, like what our coaches were thinking, but they decided it was a good idea that we would drive from there, um, 
basically 10 hours to a race on the other side of Switzerland. Uh, and it was like, you know, an early start the next day. So we finished the race at like one o'clock and we were, we were straight in the vans, like back to the hotel, load, loaded up the vans with the stuff that wasn't in there and on the road we went. And so when it got to like, you know, late in the evening, we were obviously all sleeping in the vans. Uh, and at some point, at some point I'd missed like the bags, the bags are not sleeping with the, uh, the random Swiss guy. And so we got to the hotel. I, you know, woke up from, from, from being asleep and, uh, went into the reception and my coach probably told me that there wasn't enough rooms in the hotel. And so I would just have to share a room with this other Swiss racer. Um, but not just share a room, just like basically just share a bed. So in we went, I basically went in and there's just this guy just to sleep in the room. I had to just get in there, go to sleep and, uh, and wake up the next day. I never actually saw him. I've never seen him in my life. Uh, I went to bed with my, with my, with my, with my trousers on and my belt done up. And, uh, and woke, woke up the next day, woke up the next day and off we went and did a ski race. And, and for some reason that was perfectly acceptable just to sacrifice to get there and get up, get up and go and do that ski race. I think I actually skied, I skied terribly and had a really bad day. Uh, but you know, it's the things that you do to go, to go ski. Imagine if you had the best day of your life that day, how would that have changed exactly, your, uh, yeah. your rituals, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so We've already done half an hour. We're still having a great conversation here. Where do you see Maison Sport going? Do you have plans for expansion? Like what's the, uh, what are your next steps? Yeah, we do. Yeah, no, we are like, we are, we are super ambitious with the business and really driven. And we have this, we have this internal goal to be the, to be the world's biggest ski school, which I know is quite a statement. Um, but go big or go home, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some, there's, there's some, there's some big, there's some big schools out there and, uh, we just ultimately want to just take the, this model as far as it can go. Um, and also start offering kind of the traditional group lessons as well across Europe. So we're just going to keep pushing it and see, and see where it goes. But, um, I think it really improves. I think if you're really making a difference in really improving experiences and which we are, then I think it can just keep going. I think it will keep growing and growing. So, you know, we're, we've been very much running the business like a, you know, a tech startup over the last five or six years. And, this year we will turn our first profit. And so oh, it's kind of no, no, Congratulations. there's kind of no, there's no stop in the business really. So we're just going to keep pushing over the, over the coming years. And there's other parts of the world that we would, we would love to take this to, whether it's Japan or South America or, um, yeah, any kind of any, any, any resort or area that allows this model within their sort of regulations and laws that, you know, we're going to take it there and, and, and try and try and offer, try and offer the service. Excellent. And would you guys ever get into something like, um, like travel, like group touring, some, you know, like almost having like a guide and you're like doing like a destination location travel. Yeah. That makes sense. Or yeah, we, 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 we want, we want to offer like slightly more like experience-based travel as well. So we have all these incredible instructors on the platform that offer, you know, camps or weekends, like mobile skiing clinics and off piste adventures or heli ski trips. So there's a lot more that we can do. Um, you know, we're just going to probably concentrate on that core, the core products that we're offering right now for the next year or two. And then, yeah, I think there's a whole world that we can open up. There's like all these hidden experiences that are ongoing, but they're just very difficult to find. Uh, like we were, like I was in Chamonix a few, a few seasons ago, I was, I was speaking to one of the, one of the independent instructors and he was like an ex, he's ex French mogul ski champion. And he offers all these mogul ski clinics to like these French clientele. And I'm like, do you know how many people would love to go and do this with you? You know? there's like a bump track that gets built every like a certain time every year in Chamonix. 
uh, and he'll go there and he'll take, you know, just random punters uh, in and teach them how to ski moguls and tricks off the jumps and this type of thing. So, like, you've got all these kind of unique things that I think if we can open them up to the wider market that people would love to experience. Yeah, it seems like these instructors need some help with marketing. And that's where you guys could come in and you kind of, you know, almost like featured, this is our featured instructor for the week or for, of the month. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean like that. And again, it's cool because you're really helping the customers because you're giving them a better experience, but you're also really helping the instructors because you're giving the high, like the spotlight that, I mean, imagine you're just some, again, we had in the States, we have a whole different setup. You're just some random guy. You're at this, this small resort. Maybe you're the, you're the best skier around and nobody knows it. And all you're doing is teaching these lessons to whoever shows up. But to be able to market yeah. yourself and, and highlight what you're good at could really change your, uh, your whole client base and, and your career as an instructor. So it's, it's yeah, like, like some of them, you know, I mean, he runs, a, I think he ran a couple of these camps this season. I mean, he would, he would be more happy if he was doing five or six or seven of them. You know? So if we, can, if we can find a way to kind of connect the customer directly with that, and ensure that he can spend more time teaching stuff that he wants to teach, then I think everyone wins. 100%, yeah. Well, Nick, it sounds like you guys are, have a great winter setup and you've got a really cool product. Where can people find out more information? So you can head to maisonsport.com. So it's M-A-I-S-O-N sport.com. Um, you get straight onto the website and you should be able to find everything you need there. Go into their Instagram and watch some of their, uh, I saw yeah, one, of your, your, one of you guys are flipping your ski and it's kind of a, doesn't go quite yeah, as well. Actually, as my, uh, actually my co-founder, Aaron, uh, he's one of the guys that we, you know, spent my life racing with. Uh, it was quite, it was quite a good moment actually. They were out there filming for our, like our new YouTube channel. Um, so we're going to have like a load of sort of, you know, tips, clips and tricks sort of going up there over the coming weeks. So keep an eye out for that. But yeah, Aaron was Aaron was like one of the instructors doing the doing the demos. But it's safe to say that he he's not very good at flipping the ski. As long as he's good at what are you doing? Have him doing every day at the job. That's the important thing, right? Exactly. He, he's no Didier Kush. He looks after <laughs> our money. Actually, he's the, he's he's actually our financial man. So let him focus on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it, and uh, have a safe trip, a great trip, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Cool. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Take care. Have a good winter. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll have links and information in the show notes. So check it out at skibumpodcast.com. I'm excited that uh, I would do that if I was in the Alps. Let's put it that way. Well, if you would, didn't have your club med trip, which I actually oh. talked to him about after we were Man, that's coming air, up. Yeah, you already have a guide like as part of your package, right? Yeah, if I didn't have that, that would be a good proposition because you could do something where you have different level skiers skiing together all day, getting the instruction, hanging out together. It'd be kind of cool. Just yeah. thinking. No, I love to. And I, you know, I mentioned to him as well, you know, when I first did uh, a backcountry tour with my sister, I got the gear. And if I didn't, if we didn't ask the guy at the shop, how do we even use this? We wouldn't even know how to put the, <laughs> The bindings in you know we would have wasted yeah. so much time just figuring that out been on our phones trying to look it up but to Dude, that's someone, where you get all the gear you'd be like excuse me how do i ski how do i ski yes <laughs> how do i use this you'd be like you turn the beacon on. no no how do you i use the skis yeah <laughs> That'd be funny. 
Yeah, but even having that person, if you're if you're getting into a, a different aspect of the sport, say you're you're a snowboarder and you want to try splitboarding, you could just try it on your own, or you can get someone to take you out there and learn the right way. It's such a great idea, and I think they've got a really cool product. And hopefully, if you're getting out to Europe, you should check them out. That's awesome. Well, that wraps up the podcast for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, skibumpodcast.com. Send us an email, skibumpodcast at gmail.com. Find us, follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Untapped, YouTube. We are at Ski Bum Podcast. We're everywhere. Go to the shop. You got a couple more days. SkiBumPodcast.com slash shop. Get some stuff. You might still get Christmas delivery. It's going to be cutting it close. Help us out. Become a patron. Patreon.com slash podcast. Check out the levels there. We're going to increase the amount of stuff you get at all the different levels. We think you'll have it'll be really fun. I think you'll enjoy it. We appreciate your support. I think one of the levels will be we'll prank call you every day for like a month. Have a perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Stay high, stay fluid. See ya.